Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Like, I agree with you there, where I think there's definitely a lot of lesbians in the hundreds of Artemis that fall in love with each other. 100%. Thalia, for example. Literally. <laughs> she's she's <laughs> gonna get kicked out. Welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spinoffs. I'm Emily, a Oracle of Trophonius stan. <laughs> and I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. I love the Oracle of Trophonius. I have a very distinct memory of being in one of my Greek classes in college. And it was one of those days where the professor is just like, you know what? I could do my lesson plan or I could just go off the rails and just start talking about something random. And she started talking about the Oracle of Trophonius and like the Eleusinian mysteries, and that changed my DNA. <laughs> I will say though, when my first read of this book, I, I think I remember you asked me what I thought and I, I was like not spooky enough. Yeah, you said you were disappointed with the cave. <laughs> <laughs> Which on the reread, I'm not disappointed with the scene. I would argue that it's one of the best scenes in the reordered verse. <laughs> but the cave itself we'll talk about because, again, I, I love the Oracle of Trophonius. This is a good book. This might be one of my favorites. Oh, like, wow. Like, favorite books. Of all time. I like this book a lot. Favorite book of all Not, time. <laughs> no. Of... <laughs> you heard it here first. This is Emily's new favorite book of all time. 
I was debating. I was like, is this my favorite? And it, it might be my second favorite. I think Battle of the Labyrinth is my favorite still. That's a tough one to beat. So last book we left off with Leo and Calypso rolling into Camp Half-Blood. They've got a prophecy. They know they need to go to Indiana to, for the second emperor. And so we pick up six weeks later where apparently they have been flying Festus, the three of them. And there's some references to past encounters and stuff. But like one of the first things in this book was Apollo noting that Calypso doesn't like flying. They, she has been flying on Festus with Leo canonically for months at this point straight with like yeah. no breaks. <laughs> and it's just like they finally get home and it's like, okay, another quest back on the dragon. Let her rest. Let her stay at camp or something. <laughs> I know. Like, why does she need to be here? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> just dragging her across the world. <laughs> Someone needs to get in there and save her again. And also, on top of that, she's given up her immortality, and she doesn't have magic anymore. So she's, like, completely adjusting to a new way of life, and adjusting to, like, being mortal, and adjusting to, like, all of the- she's just, like, given up so much, which is a huge, like, theme of this book that we're gonna get into a lot more. But, like, if you're ever in a relationship that looks like this, break up. (laughs) Like, genuinely, you don't like each other. Anyway, they arrive, finally, in Indiana. But the moment that they land in Indianapolis, they are attacked by the Emperor's forces. We don't know who the Emperor is for this, like, middle section of America yet. The the Emperor's forces, in this case, are monsters with no head and a face in their chest. They're having a really hard time getting away. They can't really. They seem, like, backed into a corner. And there's a great moment where Apollo is basically trying to distract them so that Leo can help tinker some stuff in the background and get them out of Dodge. And he's like, oh, let me tell you the story of me. And Calypso just immediately starts acting as his Greek chorus. (laughs) But it's interesting. I thought this was interesting because it begins with him saying, I volunteer for death. Calypso is a flawless Greek chorus, by the way. That's exactly what Greek choruses are and what they should be. (laughs) <laughs> I think with Apollo vol- saying that he volunteers for death is the start of something that we'll get into a little bit later, but he definitely I doesn't mean it here. <laughs> no, he definitely doesn't mean it here. It's all part of the act at this point. Even he is like, normally I wouldn't say, I wouldn't even say this, but I gotta put on a show. Yeah. And then this is when the ghost shows up, right? Yeah. And this ghost stirs a memory in Apollo. All he remembers is guilt. But eventually when all seems lost... An older woman appears named Emmy, who leads them into a place of refuge called the Way Station. And Emmy is another person that Apollo is looking at like, I think I know you, but his memory is just not there. Yeah, it comes to him uh, quicker than some other memories. Like, I think it comes to him within a chapter or two who Emmy is. I mean, we get our first kind of clue because she mentions that Calypso looks a lot like Zoe Nightshade. Right, and she's dressed like a, a hunter, but too old to be a hunter. And she's like in her 60s now. Yeah. But it turns out that this place called the Way Station was built in the 1880s by a demigod architect that was, and it was part of the Transcontinental Railroad Project. It was basically this like safe haven for demigods and people traveling. And it is now kind of run by uh, Emmy and as we meet Joe, who are... Probably the coolest characters Rick has ever come up with. (laughs) I just, like, forgot how cool they were. And so each new reveal, I was like, oh my god, I forgot. They're even (laughs) cooler than I thought. So, yeah, it kind of all unspools. Because, again, Apollo's memory is really spotty. But he knows he definitely remembers Emmy. 
and he has sussed out that both of them were at one point hunters of Artemis. Joe has the build of a mechanic. Leo says she reminds him of his mom a lot. Uh, as it turns out, she's not a child of Hephaestus, though. She's actually a child of Hecate, which is why she and the way station have a connection, because she's like got the sort of sense of like magical mechanics. And then we find out that Emmy's full name is Hemathea. And then Apollo is like, ah. Although, in a very interesting way, because he doesn't just remember it. Um, he actually starts getting, like, a blackout, kind of like Hazel. Mm-hmm. This portion is the start of the real return of the memory theme, in my mind. Yeah. But I think it, it definitely exists in the Hidden Oracle, um, but this mm. is the book where we're actually dealing with it, because this this whole book, that's, like, a major theme of this book, is memory. Because uh, Apollo blacks out and remembers that Emmy was once an ancient princess and legacy of Dionysus, who Apollo granted immortality to save her and her sister from her father, who was trying to kill them for breaking a vase of wine. (laughs) This is something that we'll see repeatedly from Apollo in this book, is these moments where trying to remember more and more comes with extreme physical weakness like he loses consciousness Mm -hmm. or he starts to feel sick and it just gets worse and worse throughout the book whenever he's remembering his like godly past and this is what i was referencing when we talked about it in the son of neptune and the way that percy's memories return to him versus the way that jason's do and how physical a reaction they each have because like jason gets headaches and Percy is able to remember mostly fine until he's brought to mental breakdown. <laughs> and Apollo faints and gets sick and has basically seizures, I think is what this one's described as, like looking like a seizure. Mm-hmm. And we attributed it at the time to the idea that the more traumatic and impossible to reconcile with the present the memory was, the more physical the experience of remembering it was. And so Apollo trying to remember his godly self brings him to his most mortal like levels like he brings it brings him to mortal lows to remember his like godly peak yeah (laughs) like apollo trying to remember who he was conflicts more and more with who he is and so it just makes him sicker and sicker and we see this in the memory as well where the way he remembers it is like as if he's there and it was it's what he what he was thinking at the time which matches up a lot more closely to an even more extreme example of what he was like like right at the beginning of the series And at this point, he's already gone through enough growth that he doesn't really think as much like this anymore, where basically he sees these two girls and he stops because it interests him, not because he feels any kind of empathy for them. What intrigues him about these two girls is that they are willing to place their fate so much in the gods' hands. And I I think Emmy and Faith is something that comes back a lot in this book of like her faith in the gods, because... In a way, that faith is what saves her and her sister and what persists in her. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, the full story for Emmy and Joe, just to like spell it out up front. The two of them both ended up joining the Hunters. They fell in love, left the Hunters, now have a daughter named Georgie who was left on their front doorstep by a, a ghost, by Agamethus, the headless ghost who we see here. And... It sounds like they discovered the Oracle of Trophonius and had been using it, but in order to use it, you have to go through sort of like a whole ritual process to make sure that you don't lose your mind. Um, And part of that includes a throne that you have to sit on to like kind of purge the madness, the, the throne of memory. And just recently, the throne has been stolen 
Georgie has gone missing along with a lot of other people who were staying in the way station and uh, the emperor has taken over the oracle. I love these lesbians uh, <laughs> raising their daughter. Um, and then we meet my other favorite lesbian, Bright Amartis. <laughs> <laughs> right, who is a goddess of traps and another hunter of Artemis who summons Apollo to her and tells him to uh, find her griffins who live here in the way station with her. And they've been captured by the emperor as well and are being held at uh, the Indianapolis Zoo. This is a really fun scene for several reasons. I think the best is that this is like a goddess giving Apollo a quest like he's a demigod. Yeah. And like jerking him around. Like, you know, he's like, all right, so you'll definitely help me if I do this. And she's like, maybe. This is where I started to put together like what portion of the like Percy Jackson book structure we were in. Because last time Mm. we proposed that like each book of the series isn't just a part of like the five book five act structure it's also part of like the five act structure of a percy jackson book and so like the hidden oracle was the first chapters where they get to camp and receive their quest and then this is where i started to put it together because i i was thinking of like what happens in the next piece of each percy jackson book and it's usually like we get the quests first monster encounters and like start to develop relationships between the questers and everything but usually either right before they leave camp or directly after they leave camp we have a moment where a god offers their help. So like Hermes appearing and telling Percy where to go and giving him gifts um, to help him in Sea of Monsters or like Hera Mm. appearing in Battle of the Labyrinth um, to offer them advice and tea and Hestia appearing in the woods in The Last Olympian. Um, And I think actually Apollo might be the one in the Titan's Curse. I was trying to, I was like, is it just Artemis? But like, she doesn't really help them. I think it's actually Apollo because Apollo appears to Percy as a homeless man and points him toward the train, toward the end of what I would call the second act. You could, you could argue it's the beginning of the third act or that that him doing that kickstarts the third act. But yeah, it, it might just be Apollo in that book. And then here it's Brightomartis. I think this is also where we get to directly see Apollo grapple with what it means to be like a demigod hero because mm-hmm. now he has to do exactly what he's been telling demigods to do. Like this is literally what he did in Singer of Apollo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I was thinking about that too. And he's even thinking to himself like, I never did that. Did I? <laughs> like it's forcing this self-reflection. Like there's even a moment where he's just like, well, were they ever fighting back snarky comments when I would been for like fear of retribution? Surely not. <laughs> Percy Jackson would like a word. That did make me think of what would have happened if Percy had successfully claimed Apollo's, like Apollo as his servant. Those two would have been... It would have been a hilarious book. (laughs) That would have been so funny. Like, I love Meg, and I think Meg is a fantastic character in these series and a great, like, foil for Apollo, but also, like, can you imagine if this was Percy Jackson? But I also enjoy this because Bride of Martis is canonically older than Apollo. So I was doing some research into her because I was curious. Because as I mentioned before, we don't know that much about the Minoan culture. But what is interesting is uh, we know about Bride of Martis specifically um, because of her connection to Artemis in mythology. Um, because there are stories of her beginning on Crete and becoming a maiden of Artemis at some point, being blessed by her at some point, depending on the story. And also, 
actually possibly being strongly more strongly associated with Artemis than just like being her follower. Like there is just there is some evidence that Brytomartis was sort of a precursor to Artemis or was sort of like the Minoan version of an Artemis that was conflated. Specifically because there's this beautiful temple to, it's not Artemis, but to Aphaia on the Greek island of Aegina, which is a short ferry ride away from Athens. I would highly recommend going if you're ever in Greece. It's a great day trip. There's a cool temple to Apollo. And then there is also, if you go up in the mountains, this beautiful temple dating to like 500 BC. That's to the goddess Aphaia, who some credit as being Artemis and some credit as being Bridomartis. So... I like what Rick has done here, essentially, because we don't have any evidence that she was a member of any kind of Cretan pantheon, but we also don't really have evidence of much in the way of a Cretan pantheon. It's very hard to tell what's going on because we haven't decoded their language. But I like this because if I were Rick, I would have drawn the same conclusion, which is that it's likely that she might have been a Cretan goddess that was then repurposed in Greek mythology Mm. and that she would predate them. And she says this fun line where she's like, I was around when the ancient Greeks were still living in caves. Like, yeah, you were. The freaking Cretans and the Minoans were there first, baby. And this is the scene, by the way, way back in our first episode when I was talking about me thinking ahead of like all the ways Rick expands his understanding of how the world functions outside the West. I was thinking of this series, but also specifically this moment as a great example of that. Mm. Because... We're really getting like a deep expansion. We're finally kind of acknowledging that even the ancient Greeks weren't like the oldest peoples living in Greek, and even their gods weren't the oldest gods in Greece. And I also enjoy the fact that Brytomartis in this way, despite being in Greek mythology, a more minor god, her kind of being an elder god, even than potentially Zeus, being the one to order Apollo on a quest just feels really fun to me. Like she is his elder and she must be respected. So Brytomartis orders this quest and they decide that Apollo and Calypso should go. We also learn in these scenes that Calypso and Leo's relationship is obviously a little rocky and they fight a lot. And Leo says that it's because they've been under a lot of stress since their relationship began. And also because she feels a little bit like he also took her from her home, even though he might have technically rescued her from her prison. What's interesting though is like, I mean, Apollo keeps mentioning her home, and she keeps being like, no, my prison. Like, she clearly, it's not about Ojigia. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think that's actually something she's mad about. Yeah, when you actually talk to her, she doesn't talk much about that. When she's, it seems she's no. more upset with, like, she doesn't have her powers anymore, and she's not able to yeah. live the way that she used to. Honestly, I think she just doesn't like Leo. They just don't like each other. It, like, feels like that high school relationship where, like, they're the only two people willing to date each other, so they do. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It just feels like a very, like, high school or, like, camp romance situation. I guess maybe the best examples I can think of are summer camp. It's like, oh, we're the people, like, I guess I like you, you guess you like me. We're in a situation in which, like, there's pressure to couple up. So, yeah, sure. I do feel like I I definitely get that vibe from Calypso. Like I don't I don't see much evidence of her liking Leo like that. Like I think she cares about him obviously. Like I think she'd like him a lot better if they weren't dating is what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> And I don't think Leo likes her either. Like, what is his reason to like her? Like, oh, she's a girl that exists. Yeah, yeah. I think that Leo, like, there were things about her that he fell for originally, but then the longer that they spend together, the more it's like, no, this would be more comfortable as a friendship. Calypso's only experiences with men for the last several thousand years are, like, she falls in love with them no matter what. 
And then Leo yeah. felt like he Leo also flirted with every girl anywhere in his vicinity for the whole first series. Like, as you mentioned, Calypso's kind of acting out of character in uh, House of Hades. Because, like, again, she had to to make any semblance of that work, and now it feels like she's, like, back to being in character. Yeah, she definitely feels much more like the Calypso I originally met. Yeah, which also means, like, that they just don't get along, because... <laughs> It's validation. I support their marital strife. (laughs) So before Apollo and Calypso can head to the zoo, though, Apollo has a dream where we finally learn that the emperor we're facing off against this time is Commodus. He also now has Lit. Yeah, Lit. Remember that guy? Yeah, who is the son of Midas, who last time we saw him, Jason tricked Midas into turning him into gold. And then the dream changes. So we have Apollo having a flashback to seeing Agamethus and Trophonius um, back in ancient times. So again, we've got this sort of paired with Emmy and um, Parthenos, her sister, because we've got two siblings. They're running from something in the ancient in ancient times, and Apollo just sort of is happening upon them when they're in their moments of greatest need. But unlike with Emmy, Trophonius, who is Apollo's son, they basically, in mythology, built a treasury for Boeotian king, and as we see play out in the story, uh, built in a back door for themselves, intending to rob him. Unbeknownst to them, a trap was set. Agamethus is caught in the trap, and they realize that if they leave Agamethus's body, who is dying, he'll be identified. And so Trophonius has to cut his head off so that they can't ID the body, and then is so consumed with grief and shame over what he's done um, that he's swallowed by the earth. And centuries later in mythology, this isn't in the flashback. I'm, I'm continuing the story. Mm. But the oracle of Trophonius is actually established because a few centuries later or so, another king in the area has a plague beset his people. And he's told by the oracle of Delphi, which is the oracle to Apollo, that they need to seek out the spirit of a dead hero. So they send people to find them until finally a young boy finds this like hive of bees around this cave and thus discovers the oracle of Trophonius and the spirit of Trophonius and they're able to stop the plague and thus the oracle is established. That's like the story of the oracle of Trophonius. Mm. So a few things Rick changed. Uh, In the mythology, Trophonius is instantly swallowed by the earth and Rick actually changed it so that he's wandering around begging the earth to swallow him until finally it succeeds. Another interesting thing is obviously this whole scene where he's begging Apollo to help. That's all, Rick. And man, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I really like when he human when he humanizes mythology. We talked a little bit about that uh, when we were talking about like the Daedalus and Icarus scenes in Battle of the Labyrinth. But they all really, I think a lot of the times they're the ones that really deal with like fathers and sons, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to like Daedalus and Icarus. It's a really interesting moment though, because we see it from Apollo's perspective. And Apollo is only thinking to himself, I've already given you fame for building my temple at Delphi. I'm not going to give you anything else. And decides not to help him. And I think comparing the two scenes with like the Emmy, the Hemathia and Parthenos scene and this one. Yeah. Um, but he's so deeply cold with his own child. Like he, there's just, there isn't a difference in treatment between the two. If anything, he's more harsh on Trophonius. Like the fact that he would help to that extent, like he does like the most basically that you could do for those girls in that yeah. moment. And he has no actual connection to them. They could, the connection that he has to them is that he's like seeing their older sister <laughs> while with Trophonius, like that's your kid. 
And he's thinking to himself, like, I already gave you the best gift I can think of, which is immortal fame. You don't need anything else. What is also interesting is what I have my next note on. Because we also get the reveal that Apollo and Commodus, back in the Roman times, had a thing. Right. When Commodus was growing up and kind of coming into his power. Because, as is mentioned in the book, um, his father, Marcus Aurelius, actually made him co-emperor with him when he was like 15. I do want to keep in mind this idea of fathers giving their children gifts they should appreciate, like gifts of fame, gifts that the fathers think they would value. Like my one big note on this scene, this establishment of Commodus and Apollo's prior relationship, is just how much these two are actually able to understand each other. Like Marcus Aurelius, as a Roman emperor, had a reputation for being the best just in terms of, like, the most wise... Like, he, he presided over pro- arguably the most successful, best period of Roman history. He is known for being extremely wise, extremely smart, extremely good, and extremely competent in every way. I think both Apollo and Commodus can relate to each other, because at this period of time, Commodus was essentially the son of the most powerful human being who has ever lived. Much mm-hmm. like Apollo is sort of that golden boy son, because Apollo is the golden boy son also, and Apollo is also the golden boy son of, you know, the most powerful god. Right. I think that is part of why Apollo seems to like him so much, because he sees so much of himself in him, because they both have these impossible mm-hmm. standards to live up to in their father's eyes, and both of them want, like, none of that. Because, like, when we see Commodus here, he's really just a kid. Like, he's 18 years yeah. old. And he's complaining about his his father's reign being this, you know, endless war and says that all he wants to do is sit in the capital and enjoy himself with, you know, war games. <laughs> and, yeah. like, even though Apollo notes that with Commodus's temper and bloodlust that he's a dangerous guy, the impression that we get here of Commodus is that, you know, he was once just a kid looking to escape his father's expectations and that he doesn't understand the way his father dedicates himself so strictly to protecting Rome from things that it doesn't need protection from while like refusing to spend any time in the city that he's defending and it just it mirrors the way that Apollo seems to feel about like being the child of Zeus and knowing that like his father has such specific ways that things should be done and that all Apollo wants to do is like relax and have fun and that he's not allowed that at least in his eyes. He's definitely allowed that. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, though, there's also a moment where Apollo mentions that he did stop liking Commodus as much once he actually started to get a taste of power to come into his father's power. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because that is the biggest difference between Commodus and Apollo in this moment. It is certain that one day soon, Commodus is going to take up the mantle of his father to assume the power of his father, because one day yeah. Marcus Aurelius will die and Commodus will take over. Mm-hmm. And it's that moment that Apollo stops liking him as much, because that's when the mask begins to come off, once he finally has the power to unleash all of that like bloodlust and all of these negative aspects of his character. And Apollo is stuck in a situation where he will never do that. He will never take up his father's power. Yeah, and I don't know that Apollo would ever really want to. Like, it's not necessarily seeing Commodus go on and achieve power in the way that Apollo wants that turns him off. It's more like seeing Commodus take that role in the power structure, play the role of his father, 
that he doesn't like. Like, like <laughs> within the metaphor, Commodus is no longer Apollo. He is now Zeus. Even if there is still so much of Apollo in him, they are not power-wise in the same place anymore. And I love this scene also combined with the later Commodus flashback that we'll get because I feel like it puts both Commodus and Apollo in a more vulnerable position because we see that they both cared about someone at some point and like worried at some point and found someone who understood that and had some comfort in that and then Commodus became who he became. Mm. Man, the drama of this, because again, this is a Rick Riordan choice. This is not a thing that mythology told him he had to do. Right. He was like, what if I just had, like, gay tragedy? He just made this decision. (laughs) At the core of this book. Exactly. Which is why I love it. This book is so gay. I love everything about it. Maybe that's why it's one of my favorites. It's so gay. That's why I was shocked when Jamie was like, I have a girlfriend. I was like, a girlfriend? (laughs) (laughs) So when Apollo comes to, he and Calypso sneak over to where these animals are being kept in preparation for... Commodus plans to use them all in the games uh, to celebrate him renaming the city to, like, Commodianopolis or something. <laughs> Commodus and his names, man. It, this doesn't come up in the book, but all the stuff they're saying about all, like, he wanted to rename everything in Rome is all true. But then he decided he also wanted to rename himself, and the name he gave himself is the funniest shit I've ever heard. Right, he was like, I can't just keep going by what my dad called me. <laughs> So for reference, his birth name was uh, Lucius Aelius Aurelius Commodus. And then he just started adding names. So his full name by his death was Lucius Aelius Aurelius Commodus Augustus Herculius Romanus Exuperatorius Amazonius Invictus Felix Pius. (laughs) Which means Lucius Aelius Aurelius Commodus Augustus, which is named after the first emperor and also means most revered Herculius, Hercules, Romanus, Roman, Exuperatorius, the highest, Amazonius, another Hercules reference, like, I'm also an Amazon, Invictus, like, invulnerable, Felix, lucky, pious, means pious, deeply funny. And then he was like, oh my god, I have 12 names. There are 12 months. And tried to change all the names of the months. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, oh, sorry, the, the, the year starts on Lucius first. What what would your birth date be if we'd actually done Ooh. that? <laughs> Ooh, good question. Okay, so January is Lucius, February, March, April, September. I'm Amazonius, so my birthday is Amazonius 20th. And yours October, right? So you're Invictus. <laughs> actually, I think we should go with these names. <laughs> Much cooler than September and October. <laughs> so uh, they eventually find the griffins in a cage, and they manage to befriend them. But Lit shows up and tries to stop them and comes very close to killing Apollo in the process. But before he can, Meg drops out of nowhere. Meg! And fights him off. And there's really no question of, like, if Meg is going to try to kill Apollo like Nero asked. She's immediately defending him and then she tells Apollo to leave, but he convinces her to come with him fairly easily and they have, like, a tearful reunion. And once they get back to the way station, he actually tries to tell her how she fe- how he feels, which is a big moment for him. The Meg-Apollo relationship is very important to me. It is a good one. It's a very good one. And I think this moment and a lot of what we see prior to it shows how important Meg is to Apollo, especially on this journey. Because I feel like 
he's regressed a little bit since the end of the last book. Like, he's mm. back to being a little more full of himself and feeling like he shouldn't have to do certain things because he's a god. Which, like, he'd worked through a chunk of that by the end of the Hidden Oracle. Like, obviously not all the way through it, but farther than where he seems to be at the beginning of this book. Mm. But he's able to come back to where he was at the end of the Hidden Oracle and progress way farther than that when he's with Meg. Which I, I attribute that to the fact that all of this time that he's spent without Meg has been with one person who's like the most annoying person to ever have with you at all times. <laughs> and the other is someone who personally hates him. So it's like no wonder that he regressed a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but once he has Meg there to ground him and like simultaneously humble him and give him a purpose, it brings him back down. Yeah. And I do think there is like this deep connection forged between him and Meg, both him seeing her relationship with Nero and like starting to find this like empathy in him that I don't think he's like fully come to realize yet. Yeah, I think that's part of what's solidified their connection. Like they obviously had one long mm-hmm. before Apollo realized who Meg really was at the end of the book, but I think once he heard Meg's story, it reframed who she was to him and he was able to see himself in that and actually have like a way in because as as someone who was learning to not be self-centered <laughs> having that point where he can actually like see himself in someone is probably the first step mm. to fully understanding what empathy is <laughs> yeah forging his own empathy link if you will hmm so in the scene they explain to meg uh everything that's going on right now and as they explain it to her they tell her that they are not saying commodus's name because they don't want him to learn where they are using name magic (laughs) but meg being who she is decides to say it like 50 times and this triggers another memory for apollo which is my favorite of the flashbacks (laughs) (laughs) again this is the one where you're like wow those last ones were crazy can't believe my children's book oh oh i see yeah um we're we're at the end of commodus's reign and in the flashback and he's become Mm. more and more violent and you know kills anyone who opposes him for even a moment and the next day plans to in retaliation create a spectacle out of killing many of his closest people including several priests of apollo we found out that apollo has been disguising himself as commodus's personal trainer as personal trainer narcissus yeah, and we find out that the all of these people who are supposed to be killed tomorrow decided to poison Commodus at lunch, but it failed. He He's managed to survive, and so now if Apollo doesn't do something, he's probably going to kill all of those people. Actually, he's definitely going to kill all those people. <laughs> oh, definitely going to kill all those people. And while Commodus is in the bath with his eyes closed, Apollo starts strangling him and uh, holds him underwater. And doing it takes mm. so much of his strength that he ends up having to... Um, expose his true nature as the god Apollo and so in his last moments Commodus realizes that Apollo uh, is the one killing him he says you blessed me or he tries to say you blessed me he kind of mouths you blessed me uh lovers to enemies my favorite trope oh yeah (laughs) I love when people who loved each other once tried to try to kill each other (laughs) I mean same (laughs) why why don't all children's book have the main character murder his gay lover, Phoebe. Yeah, I don't get it. On page, just murder him. In- <laughs> incredible. 10 out of 10, immaculate, no notes. Mm-hmm. I think th- this is the continuation of the thought that I was trying to explain earlier with the way that it 
these two flashbacks for Commodus kind of ground him in a way that the other emperors, or at least mm -hmm. Nero at this point, haven't been because we get to see yeah. who, who he was like as a real person and see him as someone who was loved and betrayed by every single person that he kept close because the moments that we get with Commodus aren't these moments of cruelty from him in the flashbacks mm. we don't see Apollo like see Commodus do any of that in these we see him relaxing in his tent with his lover and we see him on the verge of dying in a moment of distress and then being killed by the only person he thought he could trust yeah and it just humanizes him in a way that we don't really get from the others which is why i think it's so interesting that like he's the one that apollo has the most personal relationship with because like again this isn't you know this is a choice this isn't like something dictated by mythology and i do think it's interesting that so far like each of the two trials of apollo books have kind of centered on not just an oracle but also a lost love of apollos mm -hmm. but I think it's also so interesting that this is the one that Apollo really has the most in common with when he was a god. And that that's the one that he killed. And not only that, is he kills him because so throughout like the Hidden Oracle, we've got references to the fact that Apollo avoids the woods because of Daphne. And in this book as well, we've gotten moments where Apollo has remarked that he doesn't like looking at water. And the reason why is because it reminds him of this moment. Like, because in this moment as well, he is taking the form of a man named Narcissus, drowning somebody who very closely resembles him in the water. Yep. And when you look it up, Commodus was literally killed by a guy named Narcissus. Like, that wasn't even Rick. Yeah. It was just... <laughs> I know. It's amazing. Sometimes, sometimes irony be irony. Like, sometimes, like, things just happen and, you know, there's things that happen in history that are just so poetic. You're like, wow, who came up with that? <laughs> One of the fates was just, like, chuckling to herself at her typewriter, like, ah. <laughs> What's also fun is so many people tried to assassinate this man. One of my favorite fun facts is someone tried to assassinate him while he was at the theater, but spent so long monologuing about why he was killing him that they actually like got caught by the Praetorian Guard and didn't kill him. <laughs> That's so Luke Castellan of him. <laughs> <laughs> but to respond to what you said earlier about the Daphne Commodus thing, I think that that feeling also comes from the way that like in the hidden oracle all of the tragedy that he was thinking back on was something that was in the past that he was like something that he could reflect on and mourn and like continue forward from but here all of the tragedy that he's caused is currently in the room with him <laughs> like uh Agam agamethus is a ghost in his house <laughs> and commodus is alive again and like is back physically to confront Apollo and so he has to actually confront these things that were in his past instead of you know look back on them and understand them from a distance so it's just another it's just the next step in him confronting who he was and I think like it's important that he's having that while you know everything's lining up for him again to have to make the exact same choices he made back then to kill Commodus for the same exact violence and power hungry moves he was making thousands of years before and that, like the emperors are, it's another version of Apollo for him to have to fight and kill. Yeah, and even further than that, I kept thinking about Commodus, because, you know, as he's dying, he says, you blessed me. Like, that's his sort of last point. That's his biggest thing. And I came up with an interesting headcanon. 
and I keep in mind I have not read the last two books of this series, so this might be a reveal later. I don't think so though, but like if it is, that's wild. I was thinking about how he keeps saying he kept saying you blessed me, and he's got this like godly strength. And then I was thinking about how we get told earlier about how when you know he gives Emmy and her sister their immortality. It's because he gives them, like, a piece of his own blessing, if you will, to make them into, like, minor gods. Which set me to thinking of, like, hmm, like, did Apollo give a piece of his own divinity to Commodus? By blessing him. Because even in older times, he's got that aspect to him. Um, Like, he's got this supernatural strength so that Apollo, like, has to use his own godly strength to counteract it. It's an interesting theory. I just, like, that makes sense to me. He's like, why are you killing me? You're the one who blessed me. You're the one who, like, gave me these gifts. Yeah. Like, you're the reason that I'm here. I like the idea of uh, Commodus as a a little bit of a Frankenstein's monster. Um, There's just so much about, like, gods giving their divinity away in this book that I feel like it it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. I will accept it as canon. Right. So once Apollo recovers from this flashback, Joe comes and finds him on the bathroom floor. And Joe starts explaining to Apollo that she and Emmy don't regret giving up immortality um, to be together and that they've managed to take care of a lot of people here and they get to grow old together and Apollo is just not getting it. He's like, there's no comparison between being able to do that and immortality. Which Joe then says they discovered that it's not how long you live that matters, it's what you live for. And Apollo thinks to himself that was a very ungodly way of thinking, as if you could have immortality or meaning, but not both. And I was like, that's what I said. <laughs> because when we were doing our wrap-up talking about immortality, it just felt like like that was literally what we talked about, was whether you could change and achieve meaning while being immortal and that that was the way that this series treated Mm. immortality that like it was you had to choose one or the other being able to change and having meaning is only possible if you're able to die which it's it's a big part of the the way that this book develops the idea of immortality because we have almost an entire house of people who are or were immortal um with emmy joe calypso and apollo And then also, like, on the other Mm. side of things, we have Commodus and the emperors who have all achieved immortality for themselves. And, like, we have kind of a full Mm -hmm. spectrum of, like, how people feel about immortality in especially this book. Um, Because immortality, like, that's obviously a a thing for, like, the rest of the series. But Mm. specifically in this book, we have, like, Emmy and Joe being secure in that decision and Calypso trying to adjust to the fact that she's made that decision and then apollo you know that's one of the main things that he's struggling with and this book becomes a a huge step in the development of that for him yeah and i mean i think we see it though with the emperors how little they've changed yeah like uh, what commodus is doing here is literally exactly what he did (laughs) yeah he's doing the exact same thing just like new city and with apollo though you're sitting in the knowledge that like everything that he's doing originally was with like the sole purpose of I need to make myself immortal again I need to become a god again and knowing that like by the end of this series if all goes according to plan he would be made a god again and so he's Mm -hmm. having to grapple with all of this knowing that like if what Joe says here is true that he's heading back for like not having meaning in his life apparently yeah it also reminded me of Sally's line from the lightning thief when Percy offers to kill Gabe for her and she says if my life is going to mean anything I have to live it myself 
because like when we first hear that line we take it to mean that you can't really rely on forces outside of yourself um, if your life is going to have any kind of meaning like you need to be able to act for yourself so there's that emphasis on like agency in your life and being able to make your own choices for yourself but with choice also comes change so there's also this question of like how much meaning can your life have when it's unchanging for forever is it made me think about the way the gods operate in the world because i was i was wondering if that was true as well in the series if like the gods don't actually create meaning like they don't really change so it's hard to have meaning without change but i was wondering as well like how that impacted the relationship between the gods creating meaning and their outward acts because obviously they're gods right you'd think they would shape the world but something that i thought was kind of interesting was looking at all of the examples we have in this series i'm struggling to come up with especially like in this book all of the examples we see of apollo as a god interacting with the world and like changing people's lives almost all of the examples here are not him actually influencing events in any way shape or form they're him just kind of like helping them along to their natural conclusion like uh commodus for example he didn't come up with the plot to kill him or uh with uh, trophonius nagamethus he kind of just like left them to their fate or with like emmy you know it didn't really matter that he made them gods because they just went to join the hunters of artemis anyway and it made me think about a lot of our other encounters with gods where it's mostly just them coming and basically being like here's a side quest <laughs> You know, like a lot of them and a lot of the problems are mortals figuring out how to solve mortal problems with the gods occasionally helping them along or sending them on side quests and almost get them killed for their own selfish purposes. And there's also even a theme here as well of like gods and their children. For example, as we kind of get into later, like him not even remembering whether or not like Georgie is his child. Yeah. There's just a lot of like, oh yeah, I guess we have kids. I don't know. Like, he doesn't visit them when he, like, drops them all off at Camp Half-Blood, you know, and uh, Titan's Curse. Mm -hmm. Like, he seems to have a much better relationship with the Hunters of Artemis than any of his actual children. Maybe because they're all immortal, so they're more on his level. <laughs> That's fair. So, yeah, it, it made me wonder if we could find moments in this series where the gods do, like, consciously shape things. Like, I guess the biggest example I can think of is Hera in Heroes of Olympus. Mm -hmm. And Zeus is angry at her for doing that. There's all these rules of, like, don't interact with the human world and all that. It's like, how much are they actually allowed to change things? How much do they actually go to change things for completely, for any reason that's not, like, purely selfish? And the rules just don't allow it. And then you just kind of get used to it. And, like, over the centuries, why even bother to try and make a change? Yeah, so they decide they need to go break into Commodus' palace to steal the throne of memory and also to find Georgie and try and see who else they might be able to rescue. So they sneak into the sewer system, Leo, Meg, and Apollo, um, and eventually make it into the throne room. And they do see Commodus in there, and we overhear that he's planning to uh, launch an attack on the way station the next morning. And the cave, Trophonius's cave, is currently being guarded so that no one can get in. And then they walk off. So we conveniently hear these two, these two very important pieces of information. And then they walk off. And Leo, Meg, and Apollo get into the throne room and then start trying to find their way through this, this massive lair that Commodus has built. And the first thing that they're able to find is the throne of memory. And Meg has a line here that I know you wrote down when she's planting chia seeds in the cracks in the stone to build up like a wall of plant life to protect them, which I don't have written down. So you can talk about it. 
Well, she also says that she plants them there because she can tell that they're going to sprout no matter what. So she wants them to, like, have a chance to, like, actually grow. So she says everything alive deserves to grow. And there's this, like, really touching moment where Apollo thinks she's saying this about herself. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of immediately follows that thought by saying that the Lester part of him agrees, but the Apollo part doesn't. We're starting to get that split in him a lot in this book where it's like, is he Apollo or is he Lester? And I think he's more and more defaulting to being Lester. Yeah, I also, I I really love this moment of him putting it together that she's talking about herself and being glad that she's thinking to herself that she deserves to survive and get the chance to grow from what she experienced with her stepfather. So they find all of the prisoners and the people from the way station and some other people in kind of like these cages and Apollo like immediately reacts and is appalled because uh, he doesn't stand for slavery and he mentions a point where he helped Mithridates like take Delos because there was a Roman slave market there <laughs> when I read that I was like okay he put that in for her <laughs> he heard my rage no one died on Delos my ass anyway um we find a few different people in these cages including Hunter Kowalski these two guys on a hunger strike Georgie and Olujime they manage to free these prisoners and then eventually they make it to Georgie who looks at Apollo and says, Apollo, you in the dark, some death, some death, some death, which is one of my favorite lines in this book. <laughs> I was like, that's the kind of poetic nonsense that I love. <laughs> and she's clearly st- still dealing with the visions that she was given by the cave of Trophonius. And her eyes are described as looking like fractured prisms, which is very reminiscent of May and the way that her mm. eyes look and the way that that's mm-hmm. described by Percy. Apollo says that he knows that look too well because over the centuries he's he's seen many mortal minds broken under the weight of prophecy. Um, yeah. So it's definitely like the exact same eyes. So Georgie takes to Apollo and Leo pretty quickly but doesn't like Meg because she obviously knows that Meg is the daughter of Nero or is at least associated with the emperors. And so they decide that they're going to split up because Meg is also sensing that there's something at the other end of the hall. And so Apollo and Meg are going to go check that out while Leo takes all of the prisoners to escape. But it turns out the thing that Meg is sensing at the end of the hall is the new amphitheater that Commodus has constructed for the like war games that he's planning for the next day. Um, and Commodus is there and he sees them come in and it's just a great reintroduction of these two to each other. Yeah, he's also got chained up all over like all of the kind of beasts for the beast hunt. It's been like trickled through this whole book that he likes collecting like rare animal to fight in the arena. That was actually sort of the way the Colosseum would work is uh, generally they'd have like shows and there would be different kinds of shows, um, one of which would be the beast hunts. So they'd uh, bring in all these exotic animals with like trainers and people would hunt them and they'd put on a show with them. Another one was public executions, very popular in the arena. That was usually first thing in the morning and then it was the beast hunt after that and then it was the gladiatorial combat. But the public executions were sometimes done by beasts. Uh, where they just sort of unleash... That's where you get all the stories of, like, lions and Christians getting eaten by lions in the Colosseum. So, yeah, he's kind of, like, reenacting all of these gladiatorial games. I also made a note on this scene that I can't fully remember why I made it. I think it must have been... Because Lit has been told that he's he's going to be put to death for not being able to capture Apollo and Meg. And so he fully turns on Commodus in this scene. 
and stabs him in the neck. Yeah. After Commodus tries to slit his throat. And I yeah. think that's what made me make the note. The amount of physical violence the emperors are capable of and that they introduce this story is wild. It's true. I've noticed that as well in terms of like, like even from Calypso breaking her hand, right, when she punches something. Like we're just getting yeah. so much more actual injury happening. Mm-hmm. Like Annabeth breaking her ankle in Sea of Monsters was like the first real injury we got in the entire series. Or breaking and- her ribs sorry her ribs and her head breaking her ribs and head <laughs> <laughs> like annabeth's injuries in the cycle by from polyphemus like from there we don't really see a lot of characters getting seriously injured yeah we talked about that moment as being a slight tone shift because it was the first time that we'd seen violence happen and it brought it to a certain level where like you could get hurt but it would be like in the climax of the book or like you know there may be a like two or three situations in the book where there's an actual threat of violence but in this book it feels like violence and like harm is around every corner and it's constantly happening like even the other thing that this might have been sparked by in my head was uh peaches is Mm. brought in as like a if you don't surrender yourself i'm going to kill peaches and he has him like hanging from a chain in the ceiling and it's just all these displays of like described violence in these books with like torture and burning people alive and strangling and drowning a man with your bare hands <laughs> and mm-hmm. cutting off limbs and heads like that's in the first answer cutting book. your brother's head off while he's like still alive <laughs> yeah like you can just feel these books in your body more than uh previous books it's a very physically aggressive book series yeah can you imagine if he'd been in this the mood he was when he wrote this book when he was writing Heroes of Olympus? Yeah, what was his deal writing this series? <laughs> Why did he do this? <laughs> it feels like he just like unleashed everything he'd been holding back in Heroes of Olympus. <laughs> so t- the way that they get out of this situation is that the hunters appear out of nowhere and they all make it back to the way station. And once they get there, they've also managed to get the Throne of Memory. But the prophecy that Georgie speaks when she's sat there isn't a prophecy. It's a message directly from the spirit of Trophonius, who's telling Apollo to come to his cave the next day. And he also calls Georgie his little sister, which concerns all of them. <laughs> yeah, he threatens Apollo. He says, you need to come see me or else the prophecy I gave Commodus is the prophecy that will come true. And that prophecy is that Commodus has to kill Apollo and Meg in order to become, like, emperor of Indianapolis. (laughs) Yeah. It's the threat of, I've already given a prophecy, if you don't get a new one, that's the one that will come true. Because I think this connects back to what we were talking about in our last episode about, like, what does prophecy come to mean in this series? And it kind of introduces this idea of, like, the winner will dictate with the prophecy as opposed to the other way around. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, backed up by, like, like the Great Prophecy, for example, like, from the first series, where it very easily could have ended with the, the Titans winning, with, like, Olympus to preserve or raise, and the fact that, you know, Thalia's version of the prophecy set itself up in, ti- in the Titans' curse, so that they probably would have won if Thalia had gone along with Luke. And then, you know, to storm or fire, the world must fall. Like, they're just the, the vaguest possible, <laughs> the vaguest possible prophecy in the second series. So that whoever wins kind of does dictate what the prophecy is going to mean for them. It's kind of up to you what happens next. So in the morning, 
They take a car that Leo stole for them. They get directions from the Arrow of Dodona, which honestly, it's just such a funny exchange because the Arrow is like, turn left here. And Apollo's like, I don't understand what you're saying. He's like, are you reading from Google Maps somehow? (laughs) Like, what's going on? (laughs) I mentioned this when I was on Camp Half Pod because I actually talked about these chapters when I guessed it over there. But I find it deeply amusing that the Arrow of Dodona, like, gives by far the clearest, most unambiguous prophecies we've seen in this series. And Apollo's (laughs) like, I don't understand what you're saying to me. (laughs) And it's also deeply funny because the Grove of Dodona is arguably the vaguest form of getting a prophecy in the ancient world. It's like you go and you listen to the leaves rustle. So the fact that we've got like a piece of the grove in Apollo's hand and it's just, how do I get there? Take a car. (laughs) Turn left at the fork. (laughs) And Apollo's like, I don't even understand what you're saying to me right now. What are you saying to me? It's just like this thing where it's like maybe Apollo is the reason why prophecies are the way they are. Anyway, it's just great. (laughs) But they managed to find the entrance. But before they can go into the cave, they have to drink from two different rivers the river of memory and the river of forgetting yeah i found it interesting by the way that they named the river of memory which is like mimose or i forget the exact greek word but they never like named the river forgetting which is the late day yeah i was like we know that one (laughs) yeah and it made me wonder if rick was trying to like avoid the associations with the late and of like what we know it to be because we've established in this series already that like it makes you forget just like everything if you touch it right and so you wouldn't be able to, like, put your hands in it and drink. Yeah. This isn't, like, the Lethe, though. It's probably, like, a distilled form of it, like, flowing through the mortal world. But I did flag that and think that was kind of interesting. And also because that's, in this series, what we've seen, it's, like, how you get reborn. Gotta clear everything away to get the prophecy. And then Apollo's tripping balls. Right. So Apollo drinks from these two rivers simultaneously. And Meg, crucially, doesn't do that she's like that's disgusting <laughs> they jump into the cave which we learn what the oracle does is feed on things like your deepest fears and regrets yeah. and all of that so that's why these rivers are essential because it's like you can't remember if you can't remember your grief or like attach any fear or regret to any of your memories then you can't cling to any of that so apollo is thinking of all of these things that have happened to him and things that are currently happening to him but with no like emotional response yeah he's he's actually like happy but they go deeper into the cave and at this point apollo is like oh we should have brought honey cakes for the snakes (laughs) and meg's like the what Nobody mentioned snakes. We're like 300 pages into this book and no one's mentioned snakes. No one's mentioned snakes. And Apollo's like, yeah, obviously. Snakes symbolize like prophetic wisdom from the earth and they're attracted to oracles. Obviously, everyone knows that. So they arrive in this huge cave, completely infested with cotton mouths in this water. And Apollo's about to walk across to the seat of Trophonius to consult with him. And so Meg starts to sing the same song that Apollo sang in the Mermaid Den when he was trying to find her. And she even says like she doesn't have a great voice, but because she pours so much of her own like emotion into it, there's this magic that's created with the melody. But she uses her own words and her own story. Meanwhile, Apollo is starting to come back to himself and remember that pouring your heart out on the oracle Trophonius is like that's how you summon the spirit that's how you commune with it you don't want to share this aspect of yourself here because it will feed off of you 
Especially because projecting that part of yourself is going to also come with asking questions. Speaking of projecting, it literally projects on the walls, these images. He kind of gets to see what she's seeing in her memories. Watching her at first, like being happy with her father who gives her a rose as a gift from her mom. And later she's saying like, no, like he died, the rose died then that was all my fault. He understood a lot of her, I think, before this, but he really sees how much she blames herself here. Then Trophonius appears. And I love that we're also seeing visions of Meg interacting with her father and her stepfather right before this. Because, again, Trophonius is Apollo's son that he abandoned. Yeah. This scene is really the one where I started to put together how we were approaching the fathers and sons theme that's throughout this series because with Apollo having to face Trophonius and then people like Meg and Nero and Commodus and Marcus Aurelius and like even Midas and Lit as like a throwaway kind of relationship yeah it's we're coming at it from an angle where it's like mainly people who feel that they've been betrayed by their father or want to be different from what their father wanted them to be This time we're focusing a lot on the children and how Mm -hmm. they're responding to the things that their fathers did to them. So in the first book, it feels more like Apollo confronting his own and Meg's and like his his relationship with his children, but also his relationship with his his father of like the current state of their relationships and like what's going on in them. And then this one is more Mm -hmm. like, how are you going to respond to it? Or like, how do you move on from that? There's a lot here with like, how things are fated to be and people stuck in certain fates and certain loops. It's like the first one I felt like was a lot more about, like you said, the current state of things with these characters. And this one is showing all of these similar relationships. Like it's sort of showing the loop, the cycle they've been stuck in to a lot more depth and how that passes persists in the cycles it sets up. Yeah. And who's managed to escape that and who hasn't. Yeah. Because I think, like, not to skip ahead, but the way it ends with Trifonius and Agamethus, I think, is the conclusion of that. Because it ends with them breaking the cycle, yeah. breaking their fate, breaking their shared torment, essentially. Like, Apollo actually taking a step to change something that he created in their relationship. So, uh, as Apollo approaches the dais, Trifonius appears. And he basically says that because Meg is the one that poured her heart out into the cave and she has questions, she is like his supplicant and he's going to fill her with like the terror and the prophecy. And Apollo is begging him because he's saying, Meg isn't the petitioner. I'm your petitioner. She's not prepared. This will destroy her. This, oof, because Apollo is begging him, saying, take me instead, take me instead. And Trifonia says, that's what I begged you for right before I kind of became what I am now. Did you listen to me then, Father? I, I just wrote down a few pieces of this quote, but he, he says a lot of things, but one of them is like, I dwell in darkness now because I am your son. And even Apollo is basically saying like, I will take Meg's place. I would even be willing to die for her. And Trifonius is like, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I so understand Trifonius's pain here because he's, all of these things he's raising are so legitimate issues. And he's saying like, oh, I'm sorry, you won't save me, your actual son, but you're willing to die for this girl that you've known for like two seconds. But when Apollo thinks about it, he really is willing to die yeah. for her. And that's the thing is like, like we kind of flagged, like he says like, oh, I'm, I'll, I'll die. I'll be the one at the beginning of this book. And he's not serious, but that's changed. And he, cause he thinks about Emmy and Calypso 
giving up their divinity before as he's like thinking about this as well yeah and it's the moment that he he finally understands why they would give up immortality and like allow themselves to die for the people that they care about so now might be a good time to talk about the oracle of trophonius yeah explain it to us so when i came away from this book i think i mentioned before my uh initial reaction was that this was not scary enough the reason why is because the oracle of trophonius was like so notoriously terrifying that it was actually like a um, euphemism that was actually used in the ancient world like instead of saying wow he looked scared you could say wow he looked like he just visited the oracle of trophonius and there's i even found like these little references amusing of like um how commodus would like send people in on his behalf because interestingly enough in history a lot of kings would send people on their behalf to the oracle trophonius because having to go through this was so unideal that they would rather pay for someone else to deal with it. Because unlike with Delphi or Dodona or a litany of other oracles, this was like a process. You would go as either an emissary or to consult it yourself, and they would put you up for a few days, during which time you'd have to be bathing in these different springs that were very cold like five times a day or something you'd have to be eating and drinking only what was prepared for you very specific diet and there are questions as to whether or not certain mind-altering substances like ergot which i think i talked about with the Eleusinian mysteries were involved and then what you would do is you would descend into an entrance to the underworld this dark cave And then you would, potentially tripping balls, sit in a dark, claustrophobic cave all night by yourself to commune with the spirit of a dead hero. That has got to have been one of the most terrifying experiences. (laughs) And then they'd pull you out of the cave, sit you down on this throne of memory, and, like, write down all of your incoherent babbling, and then that's your, and then interpret your prophecy for you. Like, that's bananas. That's, I want that. I want Apollo locked in a dark cave having to contemplate everything while tripping balls. And not happy tripping, scared tripping. Right. But you're not disappointed in it anymore. (laughs) Well, I think I appreciate this scene a lot more. Because now that I'm looking at it from an analytical perspective, I'm like, oh, this is so good. I do really enjoy that this is the oracle that we come to where Apollo's really having to face and, like, confront all of this stuff. Because it does feel, like, very much in spirit of it. Whereas, like, the the Oracle of Dodona is, like, this very vague and ancient thing that kind of sets him on this quest. But, like, this is the part where he's really starting to have to face a lot of hard truths about himself. And, again, if you're thinking about it in terms of, like, being an actual person in our world visiting this Oracle, you know, what you are going to be seeing is your worst experiences and your worst fears reflected back at you, probably. And the fact that in this case, it's all personified in, like, the son that you essentially forsook coming back and making you beg and having complete power over you. It's interesting that if this is a reflection of Apollo's greatest fears, that this is what this is. And so Meg gets swarmed by bees, which might seem random, but they are, like, how the oracle was quote-unquote discovered, as I mentioned before. And what's also interesting is um, when he's sort of tripping balls initially... He falls into the water before they get to the snake cavern, and he sees a vision of the goddess Styx, who reminds him of his oath that he broke. And he's making another oath immediately to his son that he knows he probably won't be able to keep, but feels like he has no other choice to save Meg. 
And also in that vision, he has a vision of Zeus and his mom. Yeah. Leto is begging him to let Apollo out of his punishment and Zeus says no he has harder and worse things to come and when I first saw that I was I was thinking that it was just him having just had a drink from the rivers of memory and forgetting that he's experiencing those visions because of that but then when I read this scene I wondered if the cave was pulling those as like fears that he has out of him Mm. and that that was why he was having those visions of like things that he's never seen I think that makes sense because I, I, you see, you feel that fear of breaking his sticks oath in these moments. You feel that coming back. It's like this thing that's always kind of buzzing in the back of his mind. Yeah, and there are questions there of like, how is this going to play out, and like, what comes next for me? When, when is my punishment over? And it just, I, I figured that that was the cave. You know, assuming that he's going to be the one to take the prophecy because he's the one who went through the ritual, basically starting its process with him, and then shifting over to Meg once she's the one who's projecting her fears into the cave. So Meg is quickly dying. The bees have gone like into her throat. They're in her nose, in her ears. It says they're even in her tear ducts. Yeah. Which that's, I hate that mental image. <laughs> Apollo is doing his best to help her. He's singing to her. At one point he just starts talking, like rambling, trying to just get her to come back to him. Yeah. He sings about Demeter and her quote, infinite benevolence how all these people that she's made into gods or tried to make into gods like how generous she is i wrote down that there's actually it feels like there is a lot of this book about demeter kids because lit is also a demeter kid and he and meg have this moment where he's like yeah we're we make the best fighters because we know how to reap i loved that line badass line (laughs) and it made me think about how underrated the demeter kids are and how this is kind of justice for them in a way but like Mm -hmm. showing like a much deeper exploration of like what it means to be a Demeter kid and all of its like dimensions of how there's like both this generosity and this potential for destruction. Because in the original series, like up to this point, the Demeter cabin is one of those ones that they just kind of like mention offhand as like, and then the extras were also there (laughs) in the background. (laughs) And I think we got like in the last series, we got the development of like the Aphrodite cabin or the Hephaestus cabin. But they still had major players in in the actual plot of the book, you know, like Selena and Beckendorf. Mm. But like Demeter has never had anything like that. And so is Apollo, honestly. Apollo's cabin gets more mentions because they're the kids who are healing you. Will got his moment for the first time at the very end of the last series. Like he was mentioned in moments just to heal people in the first series. Mm. And then he and Trifonius finally really get into it. Trifonius is saying like, in his like moment of need he says i wish i hoped i had hoped once that my father would act like a father and this is when apollo like finally responds to him and basically says that the reason why he didn't help him was because he didn't want to bail him out from his great mistake like he didn't he says basically like you asked the wrong god for help what you should have asked for is wisdom before you did the thing that got you killed like basically saying like all of this is your fault i didn't force you into these decisions i just didn't bail you out when you faced their consequences and like yes you went through so much pain and you're locked in this cycle and that part of that is because of me like you became a prophet you became you became an oracle because you're my son but this fate was by your own design which i thought was interesting because i part of me was like this feels a little like a cop-out i liked this as a resolution because i feel like so much of what we've seen 
of like the god child relationships is these situations where it's like well why didn't the gods do something why didn't the gods do something and this is an acknowledgement of the times when it's like you're blaming the gods for something that wasn't necessarily them like i when i read this i i just keep thinking about luke because he's the one who we know best as like the one who just kept praying to his father and Mm trying to get out of his situation and then went and made the worst decisions possible over the course of the next four years five years and at one point at what point does it become more luke's fault than hermes's fault Mm. it's like where is the parental responsibility because it is true that like good parenting involves letting people face natural consequences of their actions but i think that's the thing it's like their actions Because I think the way we see also this play out is the immediate contrast where he does help Meg, but also like they're in, they're not in this situation because of Meg, they're in the situation because of Apollo. And I think it's like that, those are the times that we come down on the gods is like when they force mortals to face their own, their consequence, the consequences for their actions. Yeah. For example, like all of our talking about like the Iliad in the first series, like the Iliad is so much about mortals facing the consequences of God's actions. And here he's like directly counteracting this by saving Meg, by literally like taking her pain. Because I think that like difference, a huge difference between Meg and Trophonius is Trophonius's resentment becomes towards Apollo because he's sort of using that as a way to avoid responsibility for his own actions. Versus Meg has done, like, the opposite, where she has blamed herself so much for things that are not her fault, like the death of her father. Mm-hmm. And, had, like, that's what Apollo sees when he's taking her pain, is he's seeing how much she blames herself for not training hard enough, and how much she feels like she isn't worthy of having, like, a real family. Right. And this is when he feels himself think the same thing that Meg is thinking. Which, in Apollo's case, is, I can't, I cannot give up, Meg needs me. And in Meg's case is, I cannot give up, Apollo needs me. I wondered what Meg's state of mind was, like, if she, if she was processing this also. Because mm-hmm. we know that, like, Apollo now knows that, like, that's what's keeping Meg going. And, like, those are the questions that Meg had. And I was like, how much of this knowledge does Meg have now? Mm-hmm. Like, does Meg know, does Meg know that she had the same thought as Apollo? Because at the end, she's like, I don't remember a lot of it. You can explain it. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't believe that. I think you remember more of it than you are letting on. (laughs) Yeah. This moment felt so much like drifting from Pacific Rim. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. I was like, this is just like the scene where (laughs) Raleigh sees Mago running through the city. Anyway. So Meg survives the ordeal and Trophonius asks his favor, which is destroy the cave and destroy the oracle. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to be used by Commodus anymore and he wants to like be in a more secure location when he maybe reforms in a few centuries but he also might not and he's okay with that potentially giving up his immortality Apollo's last question before he leaves is is Georgie his actual child and where was she found and Trophonius is like I hope that mystery drives you insane and then like laughs evilly and leaves (laughs) (laughs) so Apollo carries Meg out he takes her back the way station where he sees the carnage of the battle that happened while he was gone but it looks like it's commodus and some of his his guys versus all of our main characters none of the all of the non-red shirts yeah and i found the way that apollo figured out how to get out of this interesting oh yeah he eventually beats commodus by remembering the words of commodus's father 
And he says, I remembered something Marcus Aurelius used to tell his son, a quote that later became famous in his meditations book. Sick black sales reference. (laughs) Think of yourself as dead. You have lived your life. Now take what's left and live it properly. What doesn't transmit light creates its own darkness. And it's remembering this quote and like thinking on how by trying to make himself immortal, Commodus is like robbing himself of any opportunity to transmit light and is just like sitting in his own darkness for eternity. But that Apollo is now mortal and also is light. At at this point, he's able to summon his godly form on command. And I just love that he used Commodus's father against him, knowing that like Commodus is trying so hard not to be his father and like trying to distance himself from his father. The part that I got stuck on was Commodus intended to live forever. He would drive away the darkness with the roar of crowds and the glitter of spectacle, but he generated no light. Because one of the things that makes him a particularly interesting emperor The succession of Roman emperors didn't really work the way more recent monarchic succession worked. So it wasn't just like the firstborn son became the next emperor. That was actually incredibly rare. In fact, I think Commodus was the first time this happened in centuries by the time he rose to power. If not like one of the first true examples of it. Because a lot of the times the Roman emperors would adopt, even if they were like already like 60 years old, like the person they're adopting, their chosen successor. And most of the bad Roman emperors were when it was a younger man assuming power due to family ties, because they would have been somebody raised within the imperial household with all of the privileges of the imperial household without like necessarily military experience, etc. Like if you look at a family tree of like the Julio-Claudian dynasty, which is the first one, it's a lot of like nephews and non-direct descendants, even if they assumed the throne young, becoming the next emperor. So Commodus becoming co-emperor at 15 was like an almost unprecedented thing that happened. And not only that, but they mentioned that he's like styling himself the new Hercules. But he specifically identified with what I've described as the WrestleMania version of Hercules. (laughs) (laughs) Basically the super buff, like club carrying guy where he was like very anti-intellectual. He didn't like art. He didn't like storytelling. He wanted to fight. You know, he made peace with the peoples his father had been campaigning wars about, but, like, the peace was not because they actually, like, earned peace. It was because he just wanted to, like, not have to be on the frontier and, like, fighting in wars like his father was. He wanted to go back and live in the spectacle of the capital, which is why some of the beginning of the end of the, like, golden age of the Roman Empire falls, because he did that very rashly. He would also, usually when he would be fighting in the arena, would be against people or animals from either a completely safe distance, like shooting them with a bow and arrow, or pre-wounded people and animals, or like handicapped people and animals in some way. He was like very much about like specifically the pageant of it and the appearance of it and not the like realities of it. So like taking all of that in context makes this also really interesting of like, you're not creating value, you're just putting on the spectacle. Yeah. It's funny because the people of Rome were looking to Marcus Aurelius as like this great leader and Commodus doesn't want to be anything like him, but is also so focused on like how other people are perceiving him and making sure that he has this like specific image of himself in people's minds as a great and powerful leader, but somehow accomplishing it through doing the opposite of everything that his father did. And when it comes to Rome, there's no, like, care, even in the form of, like, going to war for the actual city he's supposed to be ruling. And so having his entire legacy reframed by Apollo in this moment through his father's own 
words and disappointment. It feels like the culmination of not just the question of like, how do you make meaning from your life, but also that exploration that we've had in this book specifically of the father-child dynamic and of what happens when that relationship falls apart, but you're still trapped within it, even after like your father is gone or you've removed yourself from their life or you've changed yourself in response to the way that they were. Like Commodus has sort of defined himself by not being his father. And Apollo, like as the son of Zeus and as the father of Trophonius knows that this will hurt. And it kind of takes on a new light too taking place basically immediately after the scene with Trophonius, which was a sort of twisted version of becoming like your father, because this is sort of the inverse of that, where Commodus has done everything in his power to not be his father, and because of that becomes something much worse. So then Apollo gives everyone cancer. Apollo gives everyone skin cancer, including himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think, like, Commodus gets thrown out of the window, like, cartoon villain style. <laughs> Although they find out that he didn't, like, hit the grounds when he fell, so... Right, they can't find him afterwards, so they don't know what happened to him. Um, similar yeah. to Nero, who also, like, escaped and they didn't know where he went. Now that they're safe, they put Meg on the throne so that she can speak the prophecy that she got. Which turns out... Yeah. It's in, it's in the form of a Shakespearean sonnet, and it's so long. <laughs> Reading it, though, I was like, oh no, I, I'm getting nervous. <laughs> I was like, oh man, this next book's gonna be crazy. Uh-oh, what could happen? <laughs> um, so we also mentioned at the end of the last episode that we, we theorized that each of these books was a different genre of horror movie. <laughs> uh-huh. What I settled on, but I'm not confident in, is like the genre of horror story that's like, a little girl is possessed by something and it's terrifying mm. because that's what we've got from like Georgie and from Meg like sort of like an exorcist situation that kind of works though it it works as like a subversion of that because neither of them are terrifying like it's not it's not the child that's scary in this situation but it does have like you know when you go into Georgie's room at the beginning and you see the drawings on the wall that start to turn darker and darker and are like being scribbled out and stuff and you're like oh my god what happened to this this creepy little child <laughs> and then she speaks and it, she's just saying some death some death some death over and over and so i figured maybe that was the kind of horror story that we were telling like a demon or ghost possession horror movie scary children the genre now i'm trying to think what else it could be all i'm getting is like a blair witch project situation the genre where they like go into a cave to explore and then like something yeah. horrible comes yeah. out with them yeah, like yeah. Chronicle, which is not a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking about, there's this one where it's, like, this girl is, like, in the Amish community, and it turns out, like, there's, like, this demon that possesses people in the community, and, like, that's how they keep, like, the demon at bay is by, like, possessing a girl. Cannot believe me remember what that movie is, but... It's one of those. <laughs> cool, well, then, the, the second question is, do you have a bead that you would assign this book? I'm thinking about it. Let's see... I'm gonna go with the cave, because it's it's not just the cave of Trophonius, but also, like, Bride of Mardis is linked to Dictian Cave. My first thought was to have a bead that looked sort of like Georgie drew on it. Or maybe it would just be her drawing of her and Emmy and Joe that we see at the beginning, where it's just, like, the girl and two parental figures. If I wanted a pretty bead, though, it would have to be a bee. But, like, I don't see a bees for this. I don't, I don't vibe with the bee, so I think it's gotta be 
cave. I'll put like a little bee in there as like an Easter egg. If you look really close at the bead, you can see a bee going in. Whoever makes the beads, like can't have, but like, God damn it. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time it's the burning maze. Get hype. Uh. I can't. <laughs> I'm trying to, and I can't get hyped for it. <laughs> that is also the last book in the Percy Jackson series that I have read before this podcast. Yeah, going into uncharted territory soon. I am excited to reread The Burning Ways. It's the best of these books, in my opinion. I'm just also dreading it for other reasons. <laughs> I also just want to say thank you all if you've left us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to um, our podcast. That really helps us out. And also, if you are purchasing merch from our Redbubble store, which is linked in our link tree, thank you so much for supporting us. It means the world. We love that we're able to connect with y'all talking about uh, Percy Jackson. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email any questions or analysis um, that you'd like to contribute to our email, which is monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.